Welcome. I'm Victoria Schneps, president of Schneps Media, and today a proud interviewer of an A-lister. And on top of the A-list is Marco Damiani, who is the CEO of AHRC. Welcome, Marco. I'm so happy to have a chance to chat with you. Last time we met, we were with Mayor-elect Eric Adams talking about the needs of the children with handicaps, autism, the spectrum of disabilities. So welcome and uh, tell me a little bit about um, how you are faring in this fabulous weather. Well, I'm doing okay. Thank you, uh, Vicki. It's great to see you again. And, and thank you for all you've done over the years for, for people with disabilities. It's a, it's a major impact that you've had and, and I'm, I'm proud to, to, to be on, on today's uh, on podcast. Well, you've earned the right, but let's go back in life. Um, I'd love to hear about who influenced you when you were growing up to be who you are today. Was there a few, one or more people? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I, the answer is yes. Uh, most people probably say one of their parents, and that's true in my case. My, my father was uh, uh, born in Rome, as, as I was, actually came over very young. And uh, he was in the travel business, but he worked hard and he worked his way up and uh, became an executive at Alitalia Airlines over the years. But I got to see him, uh, his his style of work, always very generous and gracious, determined, though, and, and, and persistent as well. And I think I inherited some of those qualities. Also, I saw him go through some adversity, you know, over time. Uh, toward the end of his uh, airline career, he actually decided to open up a restaurant. And he did uh, off Park Avenue. It was very successful. And I got to see that side of him, the hospitable side of him. And actually, I think one of the qualities I've acquired over the years is, is hospitality. I don't just mean in the sense of I can make a decent dish of pasta, which I can, but being hospitable is being welcoming. It's, it's uh, doing more than what's expected. So I think uh, clearly he was somebody who did that. And over the years, I've had professors uh, at Columbia and at NYU that have gotten me to think a little bit differently. And uh, one in particular, was teaching a course on critical thinking. And uh, to this day, I really value the ability to stop, look and listen and think critically about what's happening, what could happen. And I love it when people around me do that. And I actually, I think this nation could use some more of that. Um, so critical thinking is, is a great companion to a hospitable, generous spirit. So what led you into uh, becoming the CEO of HRC, which is probably one of the largest programs in New York City serving people with special needs. I'm going to boast a little bit. It's the largest one in the state. We uh, have almost 5,000 okay. staff. And uh, so we're the biggest. Uh, and I think one of the best also. So I'm proud about that. But yeah, I started right out, right out of college. Within two weeks, I had a job. And it was the way people often get jobs. Word of mouth. I won't go into all the details, but I ended up uh, in an entry-level job as a counselor at FEGS, Federation Employment and Guidance Service, uh, which for, for decades and decades was a, was a highly renowned uh, nonprofit. And we actually worked on the grounds of Willowbrook. Although oh. we were working for a nonprofit, I actually went to Willowbrook every day for a few hours and got to experience, and, and this was when Willowbrook was just- What years? What years? Do you remember This was David? in the late 70s, late 70s. So the, the consent judgment was signed but there was the very beginning of deinstitutionalization and we were right at the centerpiece. I worked in the first day program for people with this, people with IDD in New York state uh, at FEGS at 510 Sixth Avenue. And we would go to Willowbrook every day and can then come back to Midtown uh, to the village uh, with people who had never been out off the grounds of Willowbrook in some cases. 
And when I think about the impact there, uh, you know, we talk about seeing the institution, being in the buildings, the smell, but then going in to New York City with people who had never been there before, as basic as that sounds right now, that was the innovation of the day, that you could take a person from an institution, have them walk down the street in Greenwich Village, you know, with other people supporting them. So that's where I started. And then I ended up uh, getting a job for New York State for a number of years. I helped uh, uh, create the survey team that went into group homes when it was uh, in the deinstitutionalization mode. Then I got a, uh, a request from my friend Ed Matthews to join him over at UCP. I was assistant executive director there and then to YI for 22 years, did a lot of great work there. I ran a health system for a little while for people with DD, and now I'm here at HRC. So a lot of great experiences in government and nonprofits and healthcare, and I'm still trying to learn as much as I can. And tell me a little bit about the services that uh, HRC now provides, being such a large, uh, now is it the five boroughs that, am I correct about that? Yes, we're all throughout New York City, significant size services throughout, throughout, throughout the boroughs. And um, I like to, to say that we're a life cycle organization. We uh, see little kids three years old in our preschools, and we have people that uh, live in, in homes that we support where they're 100 years old and everything in between. Um, we're very devoted to uh, uh, giving people places to live, obviously. It's very important to be in the community. But we're really good at getting people jobs. Uh, we have the largest supported work and employment program maybe in the country, getting people jobs every single day in all kinds of different uh, settings, uh, in, in corporations and in, in, in hospitality and in uh, other types of uh, services. So that's a big part of what we do. Day services, we support people in their day activities. We have two camps upstate uh, for kids and for adults. A great way to, uh, um, to build awareness of disabilities. The counselors, often those counselors come to work for us later. So that's, that's a great, great thing. And we educate a lot of kids throughout New York City, kids that the New York City Department of Education can't really educate. So they, those kids come to us, kids with autism and cerebral palsy and Down syndrome, doing a lot of great work in there. So we're very, very busy. We have a clinical system as well, the state-of-the-art clinic in our main headquarters, downtown New York. We do evaluations, psychologists, social workers, all kinds of supports and therapies for people. You know, I, I one of the uh, moving moments of my life was when one of the fathers uh, came to uh, one of Life's Works group homes and saw his child uh, eating something so basic uh, and using silverware. And he said, I didn't think I'd live long enough to see this. Oh, my goodness. So I'm sure you must have some wonderful stories about the kind of impact your services have on the people you serve. There's no question about that. There are people that even their families, as you said, believe a very hard time to live on their own, for instance. We have people who, you know, live with lots of support, but then through determination and focus and uh uh, and, and training and technology to some extent. You have people now that live pretty much on their own. And, you know, years ago, they weren't doing that. So that those are success stories. Not everybody can do that, but many people can who don't. And uh, so I think we all, always have to have a perspective of what more can we do to have the person do more? And the flip side of that is, what's the least amount we can do to have that person be successful? Because when you intervene a lot, you also have an impact on dignity, on, on, on ability to learn things on your own. So it's a bit of a tricky dance, but let's do no more than we need to, to have somebody live the life that they choose. When you are uh, talking about that, I was thinking about the tremendous mental health uh, impact right now in our communities, because Willowbrook, really the federal class action lawsuit protected the people and there had to be group homes. And even after the consent decree uh, was put to bed, 
people still had programs. Do you see that for the mentally? Do you serve any people with mental illness? We have some people, not that many. We know people that have co-occurring conditions like uh, IDD and a behavioral health diagnosis. We do have people like that. And we have a pretty uh, pretty well-developed mental health system in the HRC. Like I said earlier, psychologists, uh, uh, psychiatry, um, social workers, and so on, and behavioral specialists. But it is a, it, it's, it's an overlapping community. Some people fall through the cracks. There are some very distinctive differences as well in terms of their clinical and community-based needs. And how are you finding the ability to get the funds to implement the needs of the folks and programs filling the needs of the folks you serve? The yeah, funding has been a challenge. Uh, you know, for the last 10 or 12 years, there's been very little investment. In fact, there's been disinvestment. There have been rate cuts to our field um, in New York State. This is about an $8 billion field, which is a lot of money, but it hasn't really changed a whole lot in a meaningful way for providers. And there's a huge demand. There are long wait lists for services. The cost of services has gone up. Certainly the cost of paying people competitive wages has gone up dramatically. And uh, we haven't been able to keep pace with that. Uh, recently, Governor Hochul has been very, very supportive. And the most current budget helps that a lot. And federal money that has come in has helped a lot. But we want a long-term solution. We are very appreciative of short-term payments. We want long-term solutions because we think the workforce we have is part of a care economy and it's not a job at Target. I have nothing against Target. Target sells great stuff. But if Target's paying 23, 24 bucks an hour and we're paying way less than that because of our funding streams, that's really not fair. It's not equitable. It's not good for communities. So we're hopeful that there'll be more movement on the state and the federal side to recognize that when somebody's in a helping job, a supporting job, to give somebody a greater independence in their life, that helps the whole community, it helps the state, it helps the country, and stitching together this across the nation in a care economy framework, we think is very, very important. And that's still an ongoing uh, advocacy effort. So the battle continues, the battle rages on, as they say, Never to ends. Do what's right. And I think um, the advocacy to try to educate our legislators whose budgets you know, deal with uh, day in and day out, why we must get more than the burger store for our wages of uh, people who serve the people in need. Yeah. Have you been able to be successful in seeing that number go up? We have, yeah. And, and there've been some real leaders, some real leaders in, in state government, in particular Senator John Mannion, upstate senator who chairs the Disability Committee in the Senate, uh, and uh, Assemblymember Tom Amanati in, uh, uh, in, in the Hudson Valley area chairs the Assembly Committee. And they've really been outspoken uh, uh, ardent supporters of, of uh, legislation to bring more funds into the system. And it's worked, it worked this year. And we're hopeful that it works, um, it works next year as well. Um, and we're do, gonna do more than hope. We're gonna make it pretty clear. I think there's a fundamental disconnect in the value of our workforce. When we pay people to support people with IDD, 16, $17 an hour, a little bit of minimum wage, and people that do uh, other types of work, which is useful, but there's not human services work, what does that say about our society, that we pay people working at Target way more than we pay people working with a kid with autism? Uh, there's something disconnected there. So telling that story and making the case that this makes communities, as I said earlier, and society stronger, and also reduces costs down the road. When a person gets an effective support or a service or a clinical intervention, very often that saves money down the road. It's an investment. You know, it's interesting because I always feel that as a teacher, my, my career began as a teacher. If you get children young enough, 
you can identify the problem and work with those children to really push forward. How do you handle little ones, the, the preschoolers? It's a great point. And uh, we do a pretty good job with that. You know, we have uh, all kinds of therapists and behavior specialists and certainly teachers that really uh, use an eclectic model of intervention. They don't just use one particular model. They try to tailor it to the kid. And we involve families as much as we possibly can. And uh, some of these kids actually end up going into regular classes uh, when they're six years old, five, six years old. Um, it's really a life-changing experience. And unfortunately, though, the pandemic, just like any other educational system, has hobbled it. It's really hurt our ability to keep some of these kids in a place where they're learning where we'd like them to learn. We're coming out of that now, but it's been a challenge for everybody. Well, you know, I just see that the needs are not shrinking, uh, but the budget had shrunk over the years and the tremendous advocacy needed to make the legislators understand the power of what uh, the need is and how they must fulfill it. You know, I think you judge a society by how well they treat the most delicate of our society. Yeah, it's so well said. And uh, the state can solve some of this problem, but the federal government needs to as well. And, and you know, I'm as a, as a citizen, I'm happy that there's going to be climate change. There is climate change legislation. Uh, you know, I, I personally think that's long overdue. I'm glad it's happening. And some other things in the most recently passed bill. But which, what was stripped out of that bill was $400 billion in home and community-based services enhancements for people like people with IDD, autism, Down syndrome, cerebral palsy, the elderly, other people who benefit from a little bit of help or a lot of help. And uh, not having that investment uh, is still a major, major challenge. And I know that there'll be uh, people like me and organizations all around the nation pushing for that because there must be a greater federal investment in its citizens. Uh, all of us may end up disabled at some point um, and not, not recognizing that a national investment to make sure the systems and people, the supported people are in place uh, to keep people healthy and engaged in those communities um, is a disservice to the nation as a whole. Well, you know, I think that the uh, ability to serve people from, it's almost you're serving people from birth to death. You really are giving the whole spectrum of someone's life services. Am I correct? You're correct. But what, but what I want to say, though, is when you do it as well as you can, what happens is it gets a cadence. You do a little more now, a little less then, a little more now, because life goes through cycles and changes, right? We have joyful moments, we have sad moments, we have terrible moments, we have uh, uh, wonderful moments. And a really good system of support and care understands those changes in people's lives and tries to optimize where it's working well and, and is there and tries to anticipate when there could be a problem. So ideally supports and services, you know, for many people can vary a little bit here, or a lot there, a little less over here. That to me is the, is the gold standard if you can do it that way. Well, you know, you've shared some great ideas with us and you have certainly climbed the ladder in this world of uh, special need people. Can you give us some uh, secrets of success that you would recommend to other people in order to be successful? Thank you. I, you know, there's, it's, it's a, it's, that's not a trick question, right? So I, I can think of a few <laughs> things. Um, one is that um, organizations and government and people tend to behave the way they get paid. That's human nature. It's actually corporate nature. But that's happened to our field as well. We get paid to do certain things in certain corridors of supports and services. But for instance, we don't get really paid to do healthcare. So we don't look that way so much. But, but just because we don't get paid to do it, how engaged are we in the healthcare system or in the behavioral healthcare system or the oral healthcare system? We are supporting human beings. 
not human beings that only have this range of needs or opportunities. So I think one of the successes that I that I have achieved actually is being very engaged outside of our particular sector, understanding healthcare, understanding behavioral health, understanding oral health and involved in some of those things as well. And that helps me think and plan with others in ways that can be creative and find ways to build those bridges across those various systems. The other thing too, which is kind of very different than this, I've learned over time, and especially now, you know, you know, I'm very proud to be in charge of a very large organization. It's okay to same, say the same thing over and over again, that, that when you land on a narrative, a belief system, a vision that resonates with people and you get information from them to help get alignment around that, that vision, it's okay to say the same thing over and over again because people will begin to believe it because it's true. They'll begin to behave differently in ways to exceed expectations. So I've gotten much more comfortable saying stuff over and over again. I don't apologize for it anymore. And I guess it's like a politician a little bit, but, it, but, but from a really good place. And that is that you have to communicate with the people that do the work. And it has to be personal. It has to be meaningful. It has to be genuine. It has to be something they walk away with and don't forget. So I think that's something I've learned over the years, too, is to not be shy about um, saying things you believe in over and over again. Well, I think you've shown yourself to be a great leader and helped AHRC continue to grow and develop the programs uh, for the people who are very special in our world. So I want to thank Marco Damiani for being with us as the CEO of AHRC and chosen as one of the best places for women to work. Was it New York State or was it the United States? Nationally, Forbes, nationally. AHRC, New York City. Yep. Congratulations. Great way thank to end you. our togetherness. And I'm delighted that as an A-lister, we've had this chance to talk with you. Till next time, this is Victoria Schnepp saying goodbye.